I uh, grew up in a small town, Dumas, um, a town of about 5,500 people. Um, I was very fortunate growing up. I had a, my father uh, carried my brother and I hunting as much as possible when I was a, you know, a child. So we've, uh, I've hunted my entire life and uh, I'm very passionate about it. I'm very confident in my, in my, my approach to hunting today. And uh, I owe a lot of that to traditional archery. And you're gonna hear me talk a little bit about that, a little bit about that today. The, the kind of the, the, the transition I made from, from being a compound hunter into traditional, because I've talked to a lot of guys over the last few days and it's 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 kind of a it's a it's a really hard thing to do to, to try to find that confidence but once you find that and then you you figure out you know I can do this and then you, and, you, and it happens for you there's for me there's there's no greater gratification I can find in the woods than, than really trying to home in on the deer and and getting that deer within 10 yards and then making that shot and watching it all come together, it's it's really a, a great feeling. And for me to try to go back to anything else, I just don't think I could. So um, Jacob's going to help me get along. We're going to keep this real informal. If you if you want to ask me a question, you can dive in at any point in time. Uh, you'll help me actually, you know, relay some information with y'all. So don't be scared to scared to jump in. So Jonathan, real quick, we got to ask, why did you decide to go to traditional archery equipment over your compound bow that you've been using for so long? So I started bow hunting when I was uh, 14 years old. Um, killed my first deer, my first doe uh, over an old water oak tree. Uh, you're going to hear me talk a little bit later about feed trees. That's, that's one of my main tactics we do down in the south where I'm from, and it's, it's proven effectiveness time and time year after year for us in that region of the area. Um, but back to Jacob's question, why I made the switch. Um, I've pretty much formed my life around hunting, so I hunt as much as possible. Um, I have a normal job. I basically don't have a life <laughs> March through August. I work for a retail ag company. Uh, we sell chemical seed and fertilizer to provide the farmer their their inputs for their crops. So it's a pretty busy season during the summer, but it allows me a lot of time. A lot of time to it's pretty flexible in the in the fall and winter. So um, I do a lot of bow hunting, and when I started early, I, I found success with the compound. And over the years, I, I I was able, I was fortunate to kill some some really good deer. What I what I call really good deer. And uh, I was just looking for that next, that next challenge. And so I kind of stumbled into it. Uh, I was actually, I walked into my, my old man, my, my mother actually asked me over Christmas if I could go grab something out of, out of my old man's hunting closet. And his recurve was sitting up there and this was 2010. So this was, this was a few years back. And uh, I decided, you know, I'm gonna see if I can't kill myself a deer with that, with that recurve. And uh, to make a long story short, it, it took me a little while. It took me took me about a month to practice up, and I didn't know anything. I went went to an archery shop. I asked the guy. I said, "Man, I, I need some arrows for this for this old Bob Lee bow." And I'll never forget. He told me. He said, "You know, I think you should shoot full length arrows with that bow." I said, "Well, you know, fix me up." I had no clue. Uh, got some arrows flying good, and long story short, I killed a doe. And when I killed that one doe, and I felt that feeling of getting that doe close and using my own god-given talent to practice and then to try to figure out how to make that shot without the use of a you know the mechanical technology today that feeling i'll never forget that feeling and that that's what drives me to be the hunter i am today because i chase that feeling now is what i like to do I, I look for that rush and i'm not a smart enough man to put into words when I make that all come together, what that makes me feel like. So that's that's kind of how I got into it, and that's now why I'm a, I'm a fanatic with it. What was some of your biggest hurdles, or still some of your biggest hurdles as a traditional archer and a traditional bow hunter? So it's finding that confidence. You really, it's a mental ball game, but once you find it, once you realize you can do it, um, there's just like I said, I've said it already. There's no no greater satisfaction with it. Um, 
but it is a mental struggle. And I promise you, there's a hundred times a year when I want to break that stick right over my knee. It is a love-hate relationship. Um, it's cost me a lot of big deer over the year, but I think if you talk to a lot of uh, traditional bow hunters that are really passionate about it, you'll find out that it's really not about the inches of antler. And I, I'd like everybody here to understand who, a little bit about myself. I never have and I never will measure my success in inches of antler. I want to kill a big deer just as bad as the next person, but I do not hunt for the amount of inches on a deer's head. That's why I'm so passionate about traditional archery because it is extremely tough, it is extremely challenging, and when you make that happen, when you figure out what you're doing, it, there's no feeling like it. And I've said it before, I'll say it again, I chase that feeling because that's what, that's what's made me the hunter that I am today. When it comes to traditional archery and a limited range compared to some of the guys that are talking about shooting 50, 60, 70 yards with traditional equipment, how important is woodsmanship in order to put yourself in the right spot to give you a shot opportunity when that buck does show up with traditional equipment? So you can't, I cannot explain how important woodsmanship is. For, for that matter, for bow hunting in general, we all know, I think everybody here, you're not here at the end of June if you're not passionate already about, about hunting in some form, some way. Whether you're starting, whether you're an expert, uh, we're all here, we're all like-minded people. And the, let's go back to the question. Remind me, Jacob, because I'm starting to. How important is woodsmanship to traditional archery with a limited range compared to some guys using traditional or using uh, compound equipment where guys are shooting 50, 60, 70 yards potentially? How does woodsmanship, how important is woodsmanship in order to put yourself in the right position for a limited shot opportunity, limited range with traditional equipment? Yeah. So where I was trying to go with this, woodsmanship, you can't, you can't put it on a pedestal high enough. It, it, woodsmanship becomes before anything else. You cannot spend enough time in the woods scouting. You cannot spend enough time in the woods hunting to hone your skills. There is a lot of great, cool stuff out here on this floor right now. I wish I could afford to buy all of it, but all this stuff out here is not gonna make you a better deer hunter. It is not going to make you a better deer hunter. You have to put the time in the woods. You have to put the time in your scouting to learn, and you have to do this at your own pace. You know, there are guys that can help you along the way. I've met some guys here uh, the last couple of days that I've learned a lot from. But I promise you, that cool saddle right over there, it's not gonna make you a better deer hunter. You gotta put time in the woods, and that's where you're gonna find success. Back to your question, you mentioned 40, 50 yards out. So when I'm out, and we're kind of going to get into some tactics of what I like to use in the south, um, I'm focused on feed trees. Uh, where I hunt, I want everybody to understand where I hunt because this is a word that is not used enough in the hunting industry today. It's relative to where you're at. The tactics that I might talk about might not apply to some of the areas you guys hunt. Where I hunt, it is as flat as this room right here. There are no ridges, there are no hills, and this is anywhere up that Mississippi Delta. I'm from the southeast, I hunt four or five major WMAs I really like to hunt, and then we also hunt a little private ground down there. A ridge to us is two feet difference in elevation. That's a ridge. So, as you can imagine, when I drove out here to Tennessee and these mountains out here, I said, whoa, this would be some tough hunting out here for me. Um, but down there in those river bottoms, we have ample, what I like to call feed trees, that deer really key in on. And the four main ones that I really have had a lot of success over are the persimmon, the honey locust, the water oak, and the nut all. And I'll kind of start, I'll kind of say, talk about how our scouting procedure works as we progress through the season and you're going to hear me say or oh, i hunt with my brother a lot he's my best friend he's my best hunting buddy he couldn't be here today he's working but when we start our scouting process we're keying in early our season comes in on the 28th of september we're keying in early on the persimmon the water oak or the honey locust 
And over the years, over all these places we hunt, you never want to forget where you have found a persimmon or where you found a hunter locust or where you found a water oak. You keep these in your memory bank, you mark them on Onyx. And then what my scouting procedure is early as I go to all these trees, these hundreds of trees that I've found over the years, and I check to see if these trees have produced. That puts me ahead of the game come time to hunt. So I can go out, I'll start early August, and I'll start covering all these areas and trees that I've found in the past. And as I'm scouting, I'm, you know, new trees that I've found. As a matter of fact, I find a lot of trees during turkey season. Uh, that's a really good time to scout to pick some of these trees out in these bottoms. I cover as many trees as I can, figure out which ones are producing, and that allows me to be ahead of the game when it's come times to when it when it's time to hunt. So I know the trees that are producing fruit, know the tr trees that are producing acorns, and I can go in, I can I can put cameras on those trees to start watching them, and then I, then I have a game plan as the season progresses. Now with feed trees, this is a very important thing that Jonathan's talking about, is the value of woodsmanship in knowing the species you're looking at. Um, and this is something very valuable in Jonathan. It kind of goes back to your woodsmanship aspect of, you're not just going out there walking the woods, you're truly learning the species. Again, the targeted species in your area, which may be different for everybody else here, even where I live. Again, we have species that are different than what you're dealing with that the deer like to target but having the woodsmanship to understand what you're looking at. And again, the priority list of those feed trees of what those deer are gonna select for first, and then know how to go back to your secondary and, and, ter and uh, your kind of third level of feed trees and target on those. So in your area of Arkansas, what would be like your number one feed tree that those deer are going to f focus on? But also on the flip side, especially dealing with hogs and black bears where you're at, is there any other species of trees that produce uh, some kind of mass that you like to hunt over some of the other ones? Okay, so what I like to do, first I want to talk about the, my primary feed tree that I'm looking for for a mature deer because there's a difference in a honey locust versus a persimmon. A deer prefers a persimmon over a honey locust, but most of my success on mature deer comes off the honey locust. So it depends on if I'm looking to kill deer or if I'm trying to target a mature deer. So when I'm out and in Arkansas, I want everybody to understand this, we're allowed two bucks and we're allowed four does in the state of Arkansas. For me, I'm not a trophy hunter, but I love, as much as I hunt, I love to kill deer. I wish I could kill every single deer that I set up on, but if I did, the Arkansas Game and Fish Commission would probably lock me down. So to prolong my season, I, I like to target mature deer or big deer that I've seen on camera. And our season runs so long, it's into September all the way through February, so I have a lot of time to try to figure out how to target these deer. Back to the main question, the difference between the feed trees. So if I'm out and I'm wanting to target a mature buck, the first tree that I'm really looking for is that honey locust. It is not their primary food source, but if I can find a honey locust in a really thick area, on the edge of that thicket, away from other, so in that area, you gotta understand there's, there, there'll be, sometimes there'll be pockets you know, you may have four or five trees here. You may have three, 400 yards over here. You may have four or five trees over here. What I really try to target is that isolated tree that's really, that's next to some really thick cover. That tree is where that mature deer is gonna feel comfortable coming to feed. That tree is where I have had most of my success over the years. So to understand that that tree is, is hot enough to hunt, I could take any one of you out here right now and take you to a hot tree that deer are feeding on, and you will know that that is a hot tree. You're gonna find deer scat on the ground, it's gonna be padded out, and the ground, the drip line of the tree, if this is the tree right here, the drip line on, a, say, a big honey locust is gonna be sometimes this far out right here. This, from where I'm standing here to out here, you're gonna see a difference in the ground. It's gonna be beat out right in here, in this area right here. So that's gonna find, that is gonna determine a hot tree. And this is where I really like to try to set up. 
My setup is going to be based on where I think the deer is bedding. I hear a lot of guys in the Midwest talk about bedding a lot. They can find the precise buck bed. I hear it all the time. I'm 36 years old now. I've hunted my entire life. I have never once in my life found a precise buck bed where I hunt. It's so thick in some of the areas I hunt, they will bed anywhere. There might be a 60-acre thicket right over here, but you ain't going to go in that thicket and find that precise buck bed because he's going to move around in there. I just take common sense where I think that deer's bedding, and that's how I figure out how I want to make my setups, where I, where the, what wind I need to set up for that tree. I want to go back. That, that's when I'm targeting a mature deer. I want to go back to the persimmon. The persimmon is what I like to call a very target-rich tree in, for an environment. You're going to have hogs come in. You're going to have all kinds of deer come into the persimmon. And if you're just trying to key in on deer, the persimmon is what I really like to, to key in on early. We're going to get back to traditional archery in a second, but what, just while we're talking about feed trees, how important um, is pigs and also bears in your area about affecting deer movement on feed trees? Because talk a little bit more about your area and, again, how much of – you know, that is covered up by pigs and bear, and again, how it affects the deer movement. All four WMAs that I hunt, and the, and the wildlife refuge I hunt, and the private land I hunt, are all covered in pigs. So that is one reason that I don't necessarily like hunting a persimmon tree, because the pigs love them also. And I've had numerous hunts ruined by pigs and bear on a persimmon tree. That's why I really like to focus on that honey locust tree because you're not going to have a pig or a bear try to come in and feed on a honey locust. So unless I'm trying to hunt pigs, unless I want to shoot a pig, then, yeah, I'll set up on a, on a persimmon tree. But uh, so that, that's the cool thing about the honey locust is when you find that hot honey locust out there, you're, you're dealing with deer. So, you know, it, it, it kind of goes back to, again, if I'm just out there – if I'm hunting, if I'm wanting to try to kill something that evening, I want to set up on that persimmon. Or if I'm targeting a, a deer and I, I just want to focus on a mature deer, I'm, I'm trying to find that hot honey locust wherever it may be. Explain for the attendees here, what kind of mass does a honey locust produce if they're not familiar with that species of tree? So it's an elongated pod, a bean pod about that long. And this is going to, the honey locust, and, I, and I'm harping on this honey locust, and it's extremely relative to the area you're in. Because I know I've got buddies that hunt. As a matter of fact, talking to a buddy yesterday over there in East Texas, sometimes the deer don't hit them. It, it really pertains to your area. But even in our area, um, the, the trees, that well, there's more than probably seven or eight trees together. Normally, those, those trees don't get as much as attention as that isolated tree out there in the thicket. I like to call that tree the ice cream tree, and that doesn't even have to be a honey locust. It can be a persimmon. It can be a nut all acorn. It can be a water oak. But when you find that isolated tree that is away from the rest of the same species of tree, that tree, 90% of the time, is going to have a lot more buck activity on it than, than the other trees. Now, while we're talking about feed trees and also talking about traditional archery, how important is it to find that ice cream tree versus a group of timber that has a bunch of feed trees when it comes to getting shot opportunities with traditional equipment? So, so for me, hunting with traditional is extremely important. For me, my prime setup is I want a deer to be 12 yards. That's, uh, every time I set up, I'm looking for a 12-yard shot. I can't make that 40-yard shot out there. So I'm looking for a 12-yard shot, which also – that that really emphasizes why I'm trying to find that tree in that in that in that thicket because I know he's comfortable there and if I can hopefully I can find a tree to set up within that 12 yard range with the wind preferably with the wind uh, allowing me to hunt or set up there where I think he's bedding like I say I always say where I think he's bedding because where in my neck of the woods I never know where a deer's bedding a lot of times I'll kill deer I'm thinking I'm set up here and they'll come from this way. So I never know 100% where a deer's bedding. I just, bait, I just try my best to figure out where he's at. But it's extremely important because also when you get in that thick cover, it also pro provides cover for me because a lot of times these trees I'm finding in these thickets, the, 
the the canopy of some of the some of the smaller foliage and stuff is covering me up so they have you know it's a really good setup for me and sometimes i can get away with a lot of movement in those thicker areas this is a relative question uh talking about eastern arkansas explain to the attendees what is the habitat like where you're at you talked about the terrain is very very flat but you know is it mostly open ground is it mostly timber kind of give us an idea of the actual you know vegetation that you hunt in typically over there so a lot of the areas i hunt it varies a lot like i said all of the areas are as flat as this room right here but some of the areas and i i will I'm going to name a place, and my Arkansas buddy's probably not going to like this, but I hunt um, the It is as flat as this room right here, and there are areas in that that is wide open timber. You can see three, 400 yards all the way through it. There are areas where tornadoes have blown through, and you cannot see from me to her right here. It's very thick. Those are areas that you like to key in on, those transition areas, those hard edges. And, <clears throat> for example... I'm going to go, I'm going to talk about a hunt a couple years back. Um, I found a, a nut all acting tree, which is a red oak. It drops later in the season. This was late November and didn't, didn't kill the deer, but it was still semi-successful hunt on my part. I got within 20 yards of him. I just never could get him to turn right to make the shot. But I had seven or eight nut alls that were about, 80 yards out into the into the wide open timber where I had does coming in. I had run cameras on those trees over there. But anyway, so I get these deer on camera over here and I never got a buck. So I got two small deer on camera on the on the wide open trees that, that are open. When I mean open, you've got a tree, tree here, you got a tree here, all larger than this, which is hardly any cover at all. But on that edge over there where that tornado went through, I had a nut all dropping that was dropping just as hard as these over here, 80 yards. That 10 point that I was hunting that year, probably 140, 145 inch 10 point, mature buck, would only use this tree in the thicket. That's where he felt comfortable. So that is, a, is, a, is an example of why I'm, I'm targeting the trees in the thickets. Now, how hard was it for you going from or going from you know hunting with a compound where you had that extended range and you, maybe you could set up on a couple different trees versus now you having to pick a spot you're looking for a 12 yard shot like let that everybody process that he's looking for a 12 yard shot most guys are like you know 20 30 yards I feel pretty comfortable 40 yards he's looking for a 12 yard shot so how big of a difference was it for you mentally? to make sure that you're setting up for that and you're not setting too far back where you can't even get a shot opportunity at that deer when he approaches. So you, you mentioned mentally. When you decide to go the traditional route, it's a mental ball game. And I, I explain it like this. And I think if you talk to any successful traditional archer, you're never going to hear them hardly talk about the giant deer they kill because every deer they harvest is a trophy to them, whether it's a doe, a spike, a two-and-a-half-year-old eight-point, or whatever. So the hardest part for traditional, that I think for guys to make that switch, is when you see, when, you're, when you've got 140, 150-inch deer that you're hunting and you have him out there at 55, 60 yards, can you deal with that? You're not going to make that shot. You know, if you had your compound, probably kill that deer. It's almost like the transition from rifle hunting to compound, that, that's a steep jump, all right? For that rifle, you can kill that big joker that you're hunting out there 300 yards. Then you go down to bow hunting, compound, and you've decreased your effective range. And then when you get into traditional, it's almost the same jump from when you're going to compound to traditional. But again, you're gonna hear me say this again because th this is what drives me to keep doing what I'm doing. When you figure out, when you find that success on your first doe or on your first spike or whatever it may be, there's nothing like that feeling and it just keeps you wanting to drive harder. What was one of the biggest mistakes you made early on when you switched over to traditional, maybe with the same mindset you had as a compound shooter? So the biggest mistake I made and I think this is a mistake that a lot of guys make whenever they switch to traditional. You're used to your compound right now if, if, you, if you're a bow hunter 
and you're probably shooting a 60, 70 pound Matthews or whatever it may be. When you decide you want to go the traditional route, you don't go out there and get you a 60 pound bow. You just messed up. You want to go lightweight, start out light. That's what I like to tell everybody. It's so much more comfortable to shoot a light poundage bow than it is a heavy bow. I recommend guys when they start out to go out and get them a 40 pound bow. A 40 pound longbow or recurve will kill any animal in North America if you put the arrow where the arrow is supposed to go. A 40 pound bow is very comfortable to shoot. It's legal in most states where you can hunt. And when I got into it, I started out with a 59 pound recurve. That was a mistake. It was not easy for me to shoot. I actually still hunt with that bow today, but over the years I've learned to shoot a little better, so I, it's, it pertains to me a little better now. But back, if I could go back 15 years, I would have started out with a 40-pound bow. It would have been a lot more comfortable to shoot. How do you run yourself through practice scenarios? How do you go about shooting your bow, getting ready for season, and staying tuned for season? Because it's one thing, you know, you'll have a lot of guys, and I'm guilty of it too, you know, you pick up your bow, you know, three, four weeks before bow season, just make sure everything's shooting good, make sure you've got confidence. Talk about traditional archery and the value of shooting all the time and staying up to date with your shooting capabilities so you don't have, you know, make any mistakes or, you know, form any bad habits by not shooting. So I'll be the first to tell you I'm the world's worst at trying to shoot my bow every day. I do not shoot like I should shoot. I do not practice like I should practice. But when you pick that trad bow up, you're, you'll realize real quick that it is something you really need to do every single day. Once you get that form down and once, you, once it kind of ingrains in your brain, it, it starts to come more natural to you. And, and, and just a while ago, I was talking to Mr. Bobby. He's a very successful traditional bow hunter. And, and I was, he was telling me some things that could help myself because I'll be the first to tell you, I'm not the greatest shot out there. I'm really good at getting from here to that backpack right there. That's, that's what I want to do. But I've, I've done it so much that now when I get that close, it's second nature to me. But that 35 yard shot out there that Mr. Bobby could probably make any day of the week, that's, very, that's extremely tough for me. But I'll say this, with your compound, a lot of guys shoot every single day. They need to practice every single day. Uh, some guys with today's technology and compounds, let's be honest, you, I can take some of you out here and within two hours I can have you grouping in, in, you know, at 20 yards. That is not gonna happen with a traditional bow. You have to put in a lot more time with the stick bow than you do with the compound. Now, with traditional, what is one of the more exciting things that gets you fired up about killing a deer with traditional equipment? It's, it's, it's more an intimate relationship with your weapon. It's, I mean, just the whole process is what I f fell in love with, and it's, it's what I, I, it's what I uh, try to, you know, chase that feeling every year. It's... Uh, I can't explain it. I'm not a smart enough guy to explain the feeling I get. But you put so much more work into it. You put so much more time into it. And it, it, it's, it's the challenge. It's an extreme challenge. And the thing I really love about it is, you know, today's, today's industry, everybody's focused on these giant, these inches of deer. With that trad bow, I'm happy to go out there and shoot a doe. You know, I, I want to, which, which I, I love to kill deer. So I know there's a lot of people that are, that are really into, you know, I just want to kill a mature deer. That is not me. I like to deer hunt. I like to eat deer. I like to watch my arrow bury up through that, through that chest cavity. I, I love it. So with the trad bow, and this is one of the reasons I also kind of got into it, I kind of lost that feeling a little bit with the rifle and the compound after. At, you know, we're all on our own journey. Everybody's starting somewhere. So I started young and I, I, I found a lot of success early and I was just looking for something else. And then once I got to the trad bow, once I found that success, I just don't ever think that I will ever lose that, that feeling, you know, whenever you make it happen. And of course, a lot of us may know uh, Jonathan Self Films. Uh, some of us have probably saw the deer he killed a couple of years ago and saw the raw emotion after he shot that deer. I want to go to that hunt real quick because uh, I think there's some really interesting lessons. 
talk about how many encounters you had with that buck before you actually killed him and what did it take in order to not only find that deer but continue to set up on him without getting busted to give you a shot opportunity after you know five trips into that deer yep so and i've told you this before that was that was a an exceptional year that was an exceptional situation that was the most encounters i've ever had with a mature deer that you know it took me i think i killed him on the sixth time but i was always really cautious about how i was approaching where i was hunting in wind direction where i thought he was betting and luck behold he was actually he was actually betting in where i pretty much thought he was um he never did bust me um i was real real cautious about how I approached my stand and where I needed to set up according to the wind. Um, the whole wind deal and, and uh, the, I really didn't want to get into this, but the, you know where I'm going with this, Jacob? The, uh, I, I'm, not a scent, I'm not a scent killer guy. I don't believe in it. Um, confident in that, don't really care if, you know how other people think like i like i like to say i will never argue with another guy that that's really die hard into that scent regiment because i know i've got good buddies that you would not believe what they do to try to go into their scent regiment process and they got lots of big deer on the wall you can't argue with that guy but i also know people that absolutely do not believe in the whole scent regiment process they absolutely do nothing other than try to play the win the best they can, and that's the category I fall in. And I'm, I'm kind of like, I'm old school. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. And I would rather invest my money in something else other than something that I don't necessarily, necessarily believe in. Also, uh, interesting factor, when you have six encounters of a mature buck like what you shot, uh, which is it is an absolute giant, but just the consistency of success you've had though in Arkansas, just killing mature bucks, whether it's a 110 inch mature buck or if it's 180 plus inch deer. One thing I'm interested, in, and I think a lot of people here would be interested in, is how do you like to position your stands, especially if you're hunting mobile, maybe with a climber. How high up do you want to be, especially using you know a recurve, which is a lot longer than any of our compounds we shoot, and then also with stand height and, and stand placement. What are you looking for for that ambush point, especially if you're hunting an ice cream tree, for how do you want to position that stand to give you some kind of cover when you have to make that quick draw? So it, it's all relative to where I'm at. It really depends on if it's really thick or if it's, if it's really open. Unfortunately, if it's really open, some of these areas we hunt are, are wide open river bottoms. And most of the time I'm trying to stay in a thicker area, but there are occasions, especially during the rut, when we're not necessarily targeting deer on feed trees. The ruts kicked in, and now I'm looking for a funnel spot. A lot of times these funnel areas are a little more open. Unfortunately, I have to get high in these flat river bottoms where there's no cover. That is not good for a traditional hunter because it makes my shot a lot harder whenever I'm 30 foot up in the tree. I do not like to be over 15 feet at, you know, if I can, if I can get away with some, if I got some really good cover behind me, I want to be as low as possible. That as low as I am, that makes a better shot angle that I have of my longbow or of my recurve, whichever one I want to take that day. So, obviously, being traditional, the higher I get, it's it's really it's it's really tough. Even though sometimes you have to do what you have to do. A lot of these places, if I'm 12 foot in these wide open bottoms, I have no cover at all. I'm, I'm sitting there with my thumb on my bugs. I'm going to get busted. They're going to they're going to catch me. Now I want to take a moment to open up to the crowd. What questions we've covered a lot so far? And there's a lot more to cover. But what questions does anyone in the crowd have for Jonathan on some of the topics we've covered? Whether it's talking about feed trees, talking about traditional archery, or anything in between. You can raise your hand if you have a question. So if y'all couldn't hear him, his question was on feed trees. If I do, I run cell cams on the feed trees, and then particularly, how long does that feed tree? How, how long does that feed tree stay hot? So, first of all, most of the areas I hunt, I don't have cell signal reception. So, and that's probably ninety percent of the area I hunt. Also, cell cameras are expensive, and I'm gonna tell everybody here right now, one of the best investments I've ever made I still make to this day 
are the cheapest trail cameras you can find at Walmart. There's a little old brown Tasco camera you can buy at Walmart for $22. Those $22 Tascos have killed more deer for me than I can sit here and talk about. I can buy 10 of those Tascos versus one of these other whatever you want to have to get a good quality picture. I ain't looking for no quality picture. I'm trying to figure out I'm just looking to find something good enough to, to see if that's the deer I, I'm, I'm after. Back to his question, how long does the feed tree produce? How long is one hot? So it depends on the species. A persimmon, I've actually seen persimmons where we are actually drop. It takes a month for them to drop. So they're hot for, for a really long time. Sometimes it depends on the tree, depends on the weather patterns. Sometimes they'll drop four or five days, they're done. Um, so it's really just depending on that tree, but for to give you an average, um, I'm going to say a week or a week to nine, ten days. You're probably looking for another spot after that. You've got that window, and and that's what's really important. And I run a lot of cameras because you've got to figure out if you can what when that when the deer are hitting it and when you kind of need to be there because you've got a you've got a number of days where the time's running out, and then you've got to go find that find that other hot tree and that's happened a lot over the years i'm on a deer he's I'm, I'm finding him on the edge of this thicket he's using this tree right here and then i never i don't get him killed until he's moved somewhere else and i gotta figure out you know where else he's going great question anybody else have any questions yeah. here other than other than the, like the last 20 minutes you know the, the magic time do you have another favorite time that's uh late morning anything like that so this is what I like to tell people. I have a limited time on I can go hunt. I have a normal job. I don't get the time I want to hunt, like probably most of us here. So I answer this question the same way every time. If I have a free second to hunt, I'm hunting. A certain time more productive on mature bucks. Yes, sir. So I can say, I can honestly say I've probably killed most of my deer in the evening. There's no doubt about it. I've killed most of my deer in the evening, but the biggest deer I killed in my life, killed him at 1230 in the middle of the day. You know, a lot of people were at, were at home watching the football game, eating a bologna sandwich that day. I just happened to be in the tree. It worked out. Doesn't always, but there is one fact I can tell you right here. If you're at home on the couch, you ain't going to kill nothing. So that's the way I look at it. And a lot of times, you know, you got to watch your wind and watch your weather patterns. And, you know, sometimes you have to make adjustments throughout the day. Sometimes you can't sit a sit all day long. You got to make some adjustments. But for me, you know, any second I have to hunt or scout, I'm not, I'm not wasting that. I'm, I'm, I'm out there somewhere doing something. Awesome questions. Who else got a question? I'm just curious about your – scouting to hunting ratio how much time do you in, dedicate to scouting versus actual time in the stand hunting so more than likely if i let's say i take a friday off work and i've got friday saturday and sunday to hunt and i'm not already kind of on something already i'm gonna take a, probably a full day to scout and then depending on what i find that day um, I'll take the next two days to hunt. I know that I have a lot of boys actually, they'll tell you right now, they'll say, man, I'm gonna scout three days, hunt two days. Um, so it, that's also relative to the area, what time of year it is. You know, during the rut, when deer are moving everywhere, I call that the lazy man's time to hunt because man, you can get lucky at any time. During that early season scouting period or during the early phase of hunting, you really gotta put in the time scouting because you really gotta find out, you know, what. If you're hunting a particular deer, what you know, what time? When's he coming there? You know, um, you got to find that hot food source. Early season is, is all about food sources. You know, a deer, he eats, he sleeps, and y'all know else what he's looking for. Other than that, they ain't doing nothing else. So early season, you're trying to find that that food source, and it requires a lot of boots on the ground. I, I walk all day to try to find that hot food source, and then probably put a camera up, put a camera up on the next tree. I'll walk all day, and then I'll come back and start hunting the next couple of days. Jonathan, real quick, uh, talking about putting cameras out on feed trees. Uh, how quickly will you go back and check those cameras if it's on a hot feed tree that you think there's a big mature buck using it? 
So that's also a relative question. A lot of times where I'm putting these cameras out, you know, you, you can't check them every other day. They're just, it's not feasible for however far it is in or wherever I'm at. But typically on average, especially if I've checked that camera on the first time, whether it's seven days after, five days after, 10 days after, and I, and I do see a big deer, I'll be honest with you, I'm monitoring those cameras probably more often than the normal guy. You're gonna hear a lot of people tell y'all that you should stay out of the area, don't monitor the camera. That's not me, I'm super aggressive. I'm super aggressive. I've got a limited time to hunt. I need, I wanna know if that deer's using that area. So probably for an average, I'm gonna, if I can, if it's feasible, I'm gonna try to check that camera at least every six, seven days. And, that, and that's on the aggressive side. I know a lot of guys wanna leave one alone all year long, and that's great. But for me, I'm a little more aggressive. I wanna check that camera more often. If you're gonna check a camera on a feed tree, what time of the day would you wanna check that camera? And also, how's that relative to how close the cover is to it? Yeah, so obviously, you're probably gonna to wanna to try to do it in the middle of the day, especially if it's early season, unless the lunar tables are, are kind of, kind of falling in sync with that midday. I'll talk a little bit about the lunar cycle. I do not base my hunts off of the moon phase. Like I, I answered this gentleman's question earlier, I'm limited time on my hunt, so I wanna be out there at any time I can. But I have noticed over the years, I can go back to a lot of the big deer I've killed over the years, a lot of times it, it measures up with that lunar cycle. So there is something to it. I don't base my hunts off of it, but it is a great feeling when you got a front moving in, you got the moon overhead and prime times at four o'clock, that's a good feeling. That's a really great confidence booster. And there's definitely something to that. When we're talking early season specifically, again, this is something that we're all gonna be looking forward to. Arkansas typically opens that last week of September, right? I think they might've moved it up this year, but you're hunting late September into October. If you could pick a month to kill a mature buck, would it be early season or would you do it during the rut? So I'm gonna narrow this down to one week. And I'm, I'm pretty comfortable telling everybody here is I don't think there's a whole lot of Arkansas people here. I would never do this in Arkansas. My, <laughs> shut your ears. <laughs> my, my, my favorite week to hunt, and this is based off my history, my, over the, since I was a kid hunting, is the first week of November. The reason is, is because my favorite way to hunt is to key in on feed trees. Our rut in Arkansas doesn't kick off till about the prime of the ruts about Thanksgiving week, first part of December. But I found over the years that I can catch a lot of these deer on their feet this first week of November before the rut hits. I don't know whether they're just feeding up to get ready for it or what, but particularly too, when the moon phase lines up head over foot or overhead underfoot, pertaining to the prime time of the day, winds right, everything, hot feed tree, probably going to see the deer I'm after during the first week of November, especially if there's a front coming through. And I've got probably 75% of the big deer I've killed have been within that first week of November. Also, in addition to that, how many times do you need a big buck or a mature buck on camera before you're going to go in and try to kill that deer? Well, depends on how big he is. If he's a big deer, I just need him on camera one time. I'm going to do anything I can to figure out, figure out where that deer, where that deer is at. But you know, if it's, if it's a deer that, you know, I get one picture of him and then I, what I like to do, I'll just kind of go back through, through, through my history. If I get a, get a picture of a deer and it's a deer that I want to hunt, I automatically start fanning out. I'm looking for the thickest cover. I'm trying to figure out where he's bedded. I'm looking for any feed tree in the area that he may be feeding and I'm slanging cameras. If it's an area that I can sling cameras, I'm slinging cameras everywhere I can to try to see if that deer's coming in there. And then, and then as I start coming in four or five days later to check cameras, if he's showing up, then I know I can start hunting that deer. If he's not there, then he was either one of the deer that, that has that personality, he's a roamer, he's not staying in that area, and I realize I need to go you know, look for something else. Also, with a buck on trail camera, how do you weight the value of that image based off the timing you get him on camera, whether it's the middle of the night, just before daylight, just after, you know, just after dark or just before dark? Um, how do you take that consideration based off once you get him on camera, trying to backtrack him to figure out where he's bedding and maybe a hotter feature closer to that bedding site you can catch him on? So that 100 percent 
relies on the time of year. If it's early season and I'm catching him at, let's say, 7.30 in the morning, heading in one direction, well, where is he going? He's going to bed. So that lets me know that's a, that's a you know, if you can catch one on that situation early season that, that he's telling you where the typical area where he's going to bed, especially if you've got something on, you know, you got a camera set up on a food source. So it, it's really relative to the, to the time of year. If it's during the rut and, and, you know, prime rut, Thanksgiving, and I'm getting a deer on camera at 9.30 in the morning, that's not t you're not typically going to gain a lot of information on that because he could be he could be trailing a doe or you know whatnot. If it, even if it's a deer that you've never seen before, it's really hard to to, to figure something out off that. So let's talk maybe more so in the early season aspect. So that first you know month month and a half of season, you know maybe getting into some of that pre rut activity. If you get a big mature buck on camera and it's say 10 o'clock at night. How do you handle that situation versus, again, something that's kind of early morning, maybe right before sunrise or just after sunset? So obviously you'd like to see some daylight pictures. So, and typically that's what I like to do before I really try to home in on where one's at. If I'm just catching him at night, I'm probably staying out of there until I finally get a daylight picture of him because that daylight picture is going to obviously let me know kind of where his bedding area might be or where I think it may be. Will you move cameras around if you do have one at night, say maybe it's a couple hours after dark, will you move cameras around maybe towards the direction he's coming from to try to catch him daylighting or are you just going to completely stay out of there until he starts showing up a little bit earlier? So, you know, it, and this is, this is going back to the feed trees here. <clears throat> if I've got a camera on this tree, kind of back, back to my guy's question over here, and that tree's played out and that deer's no longer there, yes, I'm, I'm moving cameras. I'm trying to figure out where else I might can place that camera to try to catch this deer to see if he's still in the same area. That may be a trail. That may be a trail to the bedding area where I think he may be bedding. That may be another area where there's, there's some what I call secondary feed trees that are a little more open area, the ones that I wouldn't like to hunt, but maybe he's starting to hit those. And there are times when I have, I have hunted those trees that I don't like to hunt in that thick cover, and sometimes, sometimes you may catch him over there. Also with that, uh, talking about, you know, the, the feed trees and, and moving the cameras around, how does this play a factor when you're looking at, say you're having a buck that's almost daylighting, you know, maybe it's in the morning or specifically in the evening, like he's come out maybe just after dark, 30, 45 minutes after dark, Will you potentially go in there and hunt him if you know a front's coming or the moon phase is lining up? Is that that time when you're like, hey, I'm going to go in in that situation, even though he's not daylighting on camera, maybe the week beforehand? Yeah. So, obviously, I'm probably not going to try to hunt that deer in the morning. I mean, he's not showing up at daylight anyway. I'm definitely not going to try to go in there in the morning and bump him. But, like you just said, if there's a front coming in and he's coming in just after daylight, absolutely. I'm trying to get in there, especially if he, if I'm – if a, if he's consistent every night on that tree right there at the dark, you know, that front's coming in. It's late October, early November, my magic week. Absolutely, I'm going in to try to, to try to see if I can see him that day. Now, how important is finding buck sign around these feed trees for you about honing in on mature bucks, especially in areas you can't run cameras? So, well, that really depends on if you're out there after a mature buck. You obviously would like to see some scrapes. You'd like to see some rubs maybe in the area. Um, one of the, our favorite places that we hunt is you're not allowed to run cameras on the So, yes, when I'm, when I'm finding a, a feed tree on there, and usually those are nut-alls in that area, that I'm, that's what I'm focusing on over there. So I like to see scrapes in that area. That lets me know that there's a deer in the area. Now, I'll tell you right now, right off the bat, you are not going to know how big a deer he is by his scrape or by his rubs. That's a fact. I can prove that with thousands of trail camera videos. There can be a tree this size right here, raked up just like this. I've got trail cam evidence of two and a half year old eight points rubbing these trees three days after a four and a half year old deer rubbed these trees. I hear guys all the time talking about, man, I saw these big giant rubs, there's gotta be a big deer in there. That's not always the case. The only way you know if you're working with a 150, 160, 170, whatever, is if you got a trail cam picture of him. You are not gonna look at that sign and 100% know you're hunting a giant deer. 
But the good thing is, you know you're hunting a buck. There's a buck in the area. One thing I want you to mention for everybody, then we're going to open it back up for questions before wrapping up. I want you to talk about the relativeness of buck size to your area you're hunting. Because I mentioned to you earlier, you know, you killed a, you know, a handful of bucks in the 130s and stuff. And in Alabama, if a guy's killing a 130-inch deer, that's a damn good deer. Now, I want you to talk about the area of the country and how this can differ. Because maybe in your near area of the woods, a mature buck's 115, 120 inches. If you're down in Florida, 100 inches gets you in the record book. So talk about the relativeness of this uh, conversation when it comes to mature bucks and not everywhere is going to have a 170 running around or 180, a 200-inch deer like we saw earlier with Josh Trollinger from Kansas. So talk about that and kind of, you know, open this floor up to give people an idea of what to expect when they go out. And maybe if their goal is to kill deer like that, maybe they need to move around and find where those deer actually live. So that's a really good question because – after talking to a lot of guys yesterday, a lot of guys this morning, met some guys in Florida last night. You kill a 100-inch deer in the panhandle of Florida, might as well be a 200-inch deer. You've done something. That is something that I really get aggravated about today with, with the way the industry is going. They're so focused on these giant deer, these giant inches. You cannot kill a 180-inch deer if a 180-inch deer ain't there. You have to go somewhere where that deer grows. I have been fortunate. I've hunted Iowa. I've hunted Kansas. Those are completely different animals than southern whitetails. I don't even know why they call them a whitetail deer. They are completely different animals. So this goes back. I was talking to my good buddy Ethan yesterday. You know Ethan. Perspective. If I'm coming up to these Tennessee mountains right up here, when I drove through, I looked at all this area. Extremely hard to bow hunt. I'm telling you right now, if I go out here with my longbow in these mountains and I kill a spike, I don't even know what y'all's legal requirements are around here. I'm freaking jacked up. I know how tough it is to bow hunt. Let's just talk about bow hunting. Do not get wrapped up in the inches of horn and that define your success as a hunter. That really eats me up. You figure out what makes you happy, and you roll with it. But you're right. It is so relative to the area of the country that you are in on what caliber of deer you're hunting. Down in Arkansas, where I'm from, if I kill a 125-inch, five-and-a-half-year-old, matter of fact, one of my, one of my f- favorite kills was a seven-point, he might have scored 120 inches on public land. I killed him on my longbow. He was the largest whitetail I'd ever killed in my life. He, I don't know what he weighed. I packed him out. I have no idea. He was an exceptional deer. Did he, did he make North American Magazine? No, because he was a 115-inch deer, but he was special to me. And that's, that's what people got to learn. You've got to figure out what makes, what makes you happy. Don't worry about what somebody in Iowa's doing, what somebody in Arkansas is doing. If you're in the panhandle of Florida, you have to understand the relativity of a deer size in the area of the, of the country that you're hunting. We're going to open up to the floor. Any other questions, and then we'll wrap up here in a few minutes. When hunting Arkansas, and as flat as it is, uh, one thing I noticed, uh, we hunted late February season this year, uh, the amount of rain that they had and the floodwaters. Every public land that we went to was underwater. How do you adjust your hunt to the flooding in the areas such as like Little Rock or the WMAs around there? Or how have you noticed the rain and the flooding affect deer movement or how you would approach your hunt for the day? So I'm going to address this question right off the bat. I realized you said you hunted late February the most difficult time to hunt late February. You were, you were hunting a really, really tough time. But back to your question, the flooding, a lot of the areas, the WMAs, the refuges we hunt, flooding is, is normal. So actually I love flooding because it narrows down where a deer is going to be. Most of the time, not all the time, there are areas we hunt that we hunt water this deep. My brother, Josh, has killed two deer over 150 on Arkansas public land and water this deep. We take 
chest waders to get in there to where we're hunting. Doesn't affect them at all. They're, they're used to it, absolutely. It's nothing, it's nothing to them. Water is nothing to a deer. So, although, like I said before, a lot of times there's some areas, you know, it'll help you, it'll, the high ridges, you can kind of help funnel, funnel some there, but, but never think that, you know, this water's, this water's this high, that deer's not gonna go through there. That's absolutely false. That joker will go through there in a heartbeat. It, it doesn't bother him. These are Arkansas deer. I mean, they're used to it. So if you go back to Arkansas and you've got flooding, maybe you've scouted earlier, you found a lot of sign and you go back and then it's flooded, don't be scared to hunt that area. Now, if it's up here, that's one thing. But if it's right here, don't be scared to hunt that area. It's not going to affect their travel patterns much at all. Um, let's say you've got your feed tree. It's hot. You've got a trail cam. Buck you want to kill. You bump him going in one morning. He sees you. What's your next move? So, fortunately, I've only had this happen to me just a couple times, but both times I got my butt out of there. Um, typically on a hot feed tree, I'm really not hunting that tree in the morning most of the time. Most of the time I'm waiting to hunt that, that tree in the evening because over my past experience, over running my own trail camera surveys, most of the time that mature deer he's going to be in there that prime time everybody likes to hunt you know 30 minutes before dark so i really judge that based on on my cameras if i'm allowed to run cameras in that area now i will say this like i told you earlier i don't waste a second if i can be out there in the morning i want to be out there hunting so a lot of times what i'll do is if i know i've got a really big deer that i'm after and I've got him tied down to a couple particular feed trees, I might hunt that feed tree over there about 300 yards from that area, what I like to call a secondary feed tree. That, that way, you know, I'm maybe not going to bump him over here, but maybe I can catch him just randomly over here. And even if I bump him off these trees over here 300 yards away, he still feels safe on my primary trees over there in that thicket, and I can go in there and hunt him the next evening and hope that I haven't bumped him out of the area. What other questions do we have? I know probably some, some questions are, you know, puzzling your mind. This is the perfect time to ask, guys. Uh, great opportunity to talk to Jonathan Moreland. So anybody have any other questions, you can raise your hand. I'm an open book, today and today only, whatever you got. Since you don't use cell cameras and you use just the card cameras, do you ever check and hunt the same? Like, if, do you go in and check that camera and then hunt that same day? And, what I'm getting at is you're leaving ground scent stuff for that big mature buck to come in and smell you. So do you check them the same day you hunt? Absolutely. I don't check up one bit. If I go in, I, I, I'm probably like everybody today. I carry a memory card with me in my little bino pack, and I've got cameras slung all over Arkansas. I'm going, I'm checking my trees. If, if I walk in, and, I, and I'll go back to actually the, the largest deer I'd ever killed in my life. I went in one day. After I slung cameras all in that area where I, where I figured out where he was at, <clears throat> one day I went in, he was there an hour before I got there. I hunted that evening. I, I thought, hey, maybe he'll come back this evening. He didn't. He didn't come back that evening. But like you said, worried about blowing him out. There's a lot of people that are extremely cautious about that. You know, they think, hey, I better, I'm leaving ground scent. Like you said, I'm not going to hunt that area. I'm not that guy. I'm very aggressive. I don't, I don't worry about that. I wear rubber boots most of the time early season but when i was younger i tested most of the products on the market today since then there's there's a lot of new stuff out there all right there's all kind of ozone producing products and all that and there's a lot of guys that really believe in that I, i'm not that cat i don't i don't deal with none of that i just do i play the wind the best i can in south arkansas that is not 100 percent it's flat like this you know, I can kind of predict the thermals in the evening. The, the thermals are going to pull toward the sun in the evening. I, I pay attention to that in my setups. But 100% on the wind, it's swirling. And <clears throat> I'm not a biologist. I'm not a scientist. But the way my mind works, if you're living and you're breathing, guess what? You're producing scent. Scent's coming out your mouth. You ain't going to kill 100% of your scent. I do not give a damn what anybody tells you. It ain't gonna happen. So I try my best to play the wind, and that's how I hunt, and that's how I'll continue to hunt. Awesome. 
All right, that wraps up this week's episode. If anybody wants to talk later, I'll be around all evening. Don't be scared to come pick me on the shoulder or whatever. I will give you 100% honest answers. So don't be shy. Come holler at me. I'll be here all evening.